kind of urgency around giving people these tools in a way that I haven't before because you know people are really hurting right that's the simplest way of putting it and a lot of people do not have tools to work with their mind Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with mindfulness author, speaker, and educator Diana Winston. Diana is someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while. She's director of mindfulness education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. She teaches meditation in a variety of settings, such as healthcare, university, and businesses. She also trains meditation teachers at UCLA, and she's a founding board member of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. Because Diana occupies these different roles, we got to cover a lot of different topics as they relate to trauma-sensitive mindfulness. We talked about the relationship between mindfulness research and practice these days, the professionalization and standardization of mindfulness, both the pros and the cons of that, Diana's advice for aspiring mindfulness teachers, and how one can develop humility and confidence as a mindfulness facilitator while also being competent around trauma at the same time. Diana holds a lot of competence and skill as both a teacher and a practitioner, and she was also really easy to talk to. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, here's Diana Winston. I'm here with Diana Winston. Thank you so much, Diana, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. I've been looking forward to this because I feel like you, from what I know about your work, you occupy a couple of different roles that really is at the intersection of what we've been up to in this podcast. So you as a mindfulness teacher, as an author, and also someone who is training teachers around mindfulness and research. So I'm excited to get to talk to you about the different hats that you wear. And for people that don't know your work, I'm wondering if we could just start with a general introduction. What would you want us to know about how you spend your time in general? And maybe we could start there. So I'm the director of mindfulness education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. And that's a center we started about 15 years ago, which I can't believe. Yeah. So I've been running many things there, including developing curriculum, creating curriculum for research studies, a lot for education. And I've been training teachers. I've been training teachers since about 2011, mindfulness teachers. So that's one hat that I wear. And then I'm also a meditation teacher through Spirit Rock Meditation Center. I'm on their teachers council. And so I'm one of the founders of the IMTA, the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. So I do all of those many things and have an 11-year-old where I (laughs) (laughs) hopefully give her a lot of good attention. (laughs) Yeah, right on. Was there a primary hat? Like I I know that you've done a lot of uh, work around research and was that a, was that an entry point for you or was it more your own practice like what was the first hat you were wearing of the bunch um teaching yeah i mean mm-hmm. i was a practitioner and then i got trained actually as a buddhist teacher under jack cornfield i went through his teacher training program many many years ago when it was just like seven of us yeah. and wow. then i was teaching in the buddhist world for a long time but then i realized that i had this vision of taking these practices out in a way that would be accessible to people of all you know all backgrounds not necessarily within the buddhist context and at that point i somehow was intersected with ucla and we got interested in the same thing and that was where that job came from but i did a number of years of teaching retreats and things 
Wow. And what's it like in your role right now? I mean, here we are uh, speaking in, I guess, the spring of 2021, but how has it been for you this last year and, and what's it like in, in, the, in your role right now? Um, when the pandemic started, there was this fairly big uptake of interest in mindfulness like I had not seen before. And we were all joking because we're saying we're not doing anything different. It's just that people are wanting skills and tools when people, especially at the very beginning, when we just got thrown into that tremendous uncertainty and anxiety. And, and so there has been like a strong movement towards learning mindfulness. And then what's happened, what I've noticed like in the larger field, of course, is there's now sort of a glut of mindfulness all over the internet. So there's many, many things for people to do if they're interested in it. But I have been, also the press got more interested. There were more, you know, publicity requests. Lots of different things happened since this year. Mm-hmm. You know what you were just saying about the proliferation of mindfulness, both maybe for good and for bad. You, to me, are someone who has been a real stand around a certain level of standardization or a quality of competence inside of teaching. And this is in part the, the International Mindfulness Teachers Association and, and your work there. Could you talk a little bit about, one, your inspiration around setting some standards, uh, kind of professional standards and why, you know, how you started there. And then for people that don't know the IMTA, or if you could talk a little bit about how that started and, and where things are at. Yeah. Well, the two are intertwined for me. Um, I was, well, so, th- so at some point the field of mindfulness teaching became a thing, you know what I mean? Like the, for, <laughs> yeah. for a long when time, <laughs> I don't know, I would yeah. place it about 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, yeah. but for a while it was like, people were practitioners, they practiced and they, they lived their lives. And then a very small amount of people would become say like trained in the Buddhist tradition or something to become a, a Buddhist teacher. But with John Kabat-Zinn's work and, you know, all of the proliferation of things going on in the mindfulness world, suddenly we started to have this field of like of a mindfulness teacher, like it actually became a professional field. And when it did so, there was very little sense of quality control and standards for professionalization. Now, now that's changed a lot. So for instance, in the MBSR world, there's a lot more than there was initially, say 10, 15 years ago or 30 years ago when they started. But when when I was coming into teaching at UCLA and and thinking all about thinking about the training of teachers, I was like, we need to have some standardization, some professionalization, so this will be seen as a legitimate field. And it, it, at that time, it was kind of like the wild west of mindfulness teaching; like anybody could do it. You could take a weekend workshop and put up a shingle and say you were a mindfulness right. teacher, and course that's very problematic so that was the inspiration and then around that you know maybe about 10 years ago i started having conversations with a number of people who were concerned about the same thing and over years of working on it very slowly the imta was born and what have you learned over this <laughs> 10 years i imagine you have many stories and uh, from that original inspiration but what yeah what, what's been learning along the way there's so much, but you know, it's interesting that first of all, it's, it's an extremely diverse and global field. Like, so when we started, there was a question like, is this going to be a U.S. or North American based organization? And one of our members was really, really p- plugging for it to be a global organization. I think that we were right. It made it harder 
but it was right in in that because we at the IMTA. So the, let me just say a little bit about what it is. It's the it's International Mindfulness Teachers Association. It's a membership organization and a credentialing organization. So you can become a member if you become a member. If you're a teacher, you get their webinars and resources and you know, community that you can be part of. And there's about six or seven hundred members right now worldwide, and we're fairly new within the last year or two. And then the other thing we do is we we accredit teacher training programs that need a 200-hour, you know, scale that we ask with different competencies. And then if you go through one of these accredited programs, you automatically can get credentialed and then people can get grandfathered in. So then you have your what's called CMTP or Certified Mindfulness Teacher Professional Level. And then there's some expansion of that. But that's the basic. So it's, so it's a way of making sure that people have gone through a program where they're going to get a really helpful education so that we're not dealing with that situation I was talking about that, you know, anybody can be a mindfulness teacher. So you can have a, so you have this 200 hour minimal um, education and then requirements for ethics, for continuing education, for all sorts of things that within any professional field we want to see. And so we're slowly, you know, moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's probably where you and I also met was that you were doing work at UCLA. And then here I was with others doing work around the intersection of meditation and trauma and saw you incorporate and say, well, in some ways, I think you had already been doing some work around trauma and helping people train around working with adversity and, you know, challenging experiences in practice. But given that, you know, the audience here will be you know, probably interested in trauma. Can you say a little bit about with your hat on as the training mm -hmm. teachers and then also with the IMTA, how are you orienting these days, especially with COVID around intersection of trauma and, and mindfulness? Yeah. Well, I mean, back in the day, it was pretty minimal, like the way it was. I mean, even when I went through my, well, I shouldn't say that when I went through my teacher training with Jack I was required to take somatic experiencing. So any of us who were not, at least some of that course, to learn some trauma skills. So it was important in that as a Buddhist teacher, when we started opening the door to mindfulness teachers, we knew it was important and we started doing some stuff with it. But I would say, David, really, it wasn't until your book and then, it, and which was both, I think, a product of a moment as well as like you had so much great information, sure. but it was, it was coming in many different directions. And there was this, seems, seems to me, I mean, just reflecting back that the mindfulness world was getting interested in the trauma world anyway, but you, I think your book really helped concretize and make it available and accessible. So I would say in the last, when did your book come out? <laughs> it was 2018 maybe. Okay. So, I was, so three, three, almost four years ago. Now. Yeah. I was going to guess I was like three years, um, that it, it's become even more central. And so when you look at the competencies of what the IMTA asks for, when you look at the competencies, like most, most of the teacher training programs ask for, there's lots uh, more on trauma and people are getting more skill. And it, that's, it's a great thing. I'm so delighted. I mean, there are, there is the kind of shadow side of it, which we could talk about, but, but the, 
I think now we're seeing like a, a general embrace. Like this is like what I'm seeing from my teachers and I've trained whatever 500 people at this point is people are really super interested and want to make sure that they have the skills so that they can be, you know, able to really work with students in a, in a really mm-hmm. ho- holistic way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? That chat. Well, first I want to say also, this is where I feel like you've taken a lot of leadership in the field around it. And you know, I just hear great things about people that have come through the program at Mark. And can you talk a little bit about the shadow side? Just because you mentioned it, what, what would you, yeah, what would you see as the shadow side here? Well, I think I was referring to one thing in particular, but which is that I think sometimes it paralyzes or freaks people out as teachers. That's the main thing. Like, especially people who don't have a psychology background or trauma training background. And then they start hearing like, Oh, I could, you know, I could potentially re-traumatize or not know how to handle a traumatized person in my class. And, and then I feel like, Oh, what do I do? I'm not adequate. So I've seen a bunch of that. We, we do a lot of working with the students to teach them that they are up to it and when they can refer out and who are their resources to and what are some very basic things that they ha- already have the skills to do and when to, when to know enough is enough and when not to go there. So, you know, so we, so I tend to that issue. And, and then I also think, I mean, this is another, I don't know, I'm curious what you think about this, but it feels to me like, like when everything starts to get seen through the trauma lens and, like for, I've been teaching, I've been teaching, I don't know, mindfulness for 20 plus years. And I haven't had like a huge amount of problems with trauma. I've definitely encountered it. (laughs) No question. More Hmm. so on retreats. When I used to teach retreat, I still teach retreats, right? That that more so than in the classes. Mm -hmm. So what I worry about is that people forget that it's, even though there is massive cultural trauma and, and everyone has their own, you know, personal historical, et cetera, trauma. I, a lot of times I see people like able to handle it or to regulate themselves or to be okay. And I wouldn't want the mindfulness field to like, you know, make it too precious or something. I guess that's, yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm in agreement with you. And I think we've been in, um, I'd say some community conversation about this where trauma in some ways feels like the flavor of the month or the year, or, you know, that word is so charged and being studied in so many powerful ways, which I think can be useful. But then there is a way that I have seen people get excited about learning about trauma and it, it somehow takes away mindfulness leaves its position of being at the center or core teachings don't get centered anymore and trauma becomes the focus, which can become a little bit problematic. And then it ends up that I think the whole enterprise becomes a practice of avoidance, that it's not trusting the inherent strength and capacity of people to turn and face through practice trauma and difficulty and exactly not getting too precious around it. So it does feel like this uh, like a sweet spot or attention. And that's part of my question about for you here around teacher training is what you just named around trauma feels like asking or training people in a certain quality of competence and humility that they're willing to know what they don't know, but also be confident enough to be able to teach with a solid container and ground. So how do you with teachers? Well, one, I want to see if that seems right to you, that that's kind of that balance. And, and how do you how do you teach that 
as a teacher, you know, here you are guiding. How many people come through Mark? I mean, a lot of people are in that program. In the teacher training or our general staff? In the teacher training yeah. program. Yeah. I mean, it's, as I said, it's like about 500 at this point have gone through. I mean, how do you teach that? That's so many different, <laughs> different people and histories. And yeah. how do you do it? Um, well, the teacher training cohort is small in the sense that it's like it's 50 to 60 well it's grown over the years but it's about 50 to 60 people who go through my teacher training and it's very individualized so they're working with mentors and you know teaching assistants who are, are really like coaching them through like where are you with this okay what are the skills you need to get and how do you like let's look at how you personally are going to develop it. So part of it is looking at each person, taking each person as like an individual rather than like an assumption of, you know, this is what needs to be known. And then, and then also, um, we do a lot of being transparent exactly about the issue and, and being really build it. Part of my job, maybe even the most important part of my job is helping people build confidence and learn to trust they do belong there. And that, you know, we wouldn't have accepted you into the program if we didn't trust that you could do this. And so instilling confidence, but not a, mm. like, like a humble confidence, right? A humble informed confidence, not a, you know, an arrogant, like, oh yeah, I can do this. So, so while building, we build up that while simultaneously letting them know, like, here's what happens when trauma arises and here are the, here are the skill set that you need to get. And you may need to get a more skill set above and beyond what we can teach you this year. So it's, it's kind of that balance. What's it, what's it like for you to train teachers? And I'm wondering if there's any, any stories that come to mind, but I just, now you've, you've been in the field now, you've been teaching for a while now and then training others to train others. I imagine that must be powerful to see the ripple effects of all the investment that you've made in people. What's it like to be a trainer of teachers and then see them maybe flourishing out in, out in the world? It's the best. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. I love that. I love, it's actually, I think my favorite thing that I do because, mm. um, because it has such a wide impact and, you know, we, so many different people, so many backgrounds and experiences and, um, from all, you know, from par different parts of the world, from different racial communities, from like people have become trained and then they're going out into their communities. And it's like this, like kind of seeding. I mean, I feel like my job is like, I plant seeds and then other people like take care of the flowers and the, and the plants and they just grow and grow and grow. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's incredibly satisfying and joyful when I hear, when I, you know, I find out things that people are doing, like, okay, this person is working with, um, you know, police officers and has transformed, has been instrumental in transforming that field, or this person is working with, um, on a reservation, teaching it to Native American populations. And this group is doing it in, in the Philippines and this group. I mean, it's just like, oh, okay. Wow. I feel, I mean, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm mostly in touch with like a feeling inside me of just joy and happiness when I see that this is, that there's been this flourishing and that it kind of is cited where, where we began here. Mm, yeah. That's awesome. And can you talk about then the mark <laughs> a little bit about the research center and mm -hmm. the connection uh, with teaching and just how, I actually don't know how things are going with Mark right now, but it's such a fantastic center and would love you to get to talk a little bit about what's happening there. Sure. So we have many like 
so many different aspects of what we do. One is our, edu- I mean, we are called a research center, but I would say we're predominantly mm-hmm. an education center, but the education is in all sorts of ways. So we have many events for the general public and everything of course now is virtual. So people join us from all around the world in all sorts of ways. So we have classes, day longs, retreats, um, we have, and it's all secular, right? So just to clarify yeah. that for your audience, it's all completely secular. It's mindfulness as opposed to um, Buddhist or anything else. The programs that we offer, we have a lot that's free. We have a free app with meditations that are recorded weekly because I teach a program at the one of the UCLA Museum, the Hammer Museum, where we, um, for the last 10 years, I've been guiding people in meditation, me and others, and that's become an app. And we have like hundreds of thousands of people who are downloading our meditations and listening to our app now on a regular basis. And the really exciting thing is just a side point is we have been collaborating with a governmental agency in California, and we're going to have our core meditations translated into, I think, seven to 10 different languages, wow. including ones that like we'll have Farsi and Hindi and Tagalog and Vietnamese and Mixtec. Do you know what that is? I actually don't <laughs> It's like a, a Oaxacan language. So wow. it, they, they were the most popular languages in California. So we're, um, anyway, there's some other ones as well, but so we're really, it's the, the intention of our, of our, organization is radical accessibility. Like how do we bring these practices out in a way that would be accessible to anyone who is interested? And so we do that through these general public classes. We do a lot, of course, on campus, UCLA campus. We have a couple of four credit courses and we're always interfacing with the students and everything is free to the students. And then our research, and then there's the teacher training, which we've talked about some, or my training in mindfulness facilitation, which is now in its 11th year. Um, and then our research component, we partner, um, we're part of something called the Cousin Center for Psychoneuroimmunology. And we typically partner on different studies. So some ones that we are, we've been involved in for the last couple of years have been uh we did a sleep study looking at insomnia, the impact of insomnia, mindfulness on insomnia. We've, we're doing a study with breast cancer survivors. That's actually a multi-site study with Dana Farber and, and John Hopkins looking at younger breast cancer survivors and mindfulness. We're doing a study, something for Alzheimer's caregivers. Wow. We did an early study on people with ADHD, kids and adults. So it's pretty broad-based and it depends a lot on like who comes to us and how we can partner. And an interesting one, I'm just about to start is I've designed the protocol for um, weight stigmatization and whether people who judge others for their weight, how that might, how they might be impacted by loving kindness and mindfulness practices towards themselves and how that might impact their judgments of others. So I'm really excited about that one, but that's just a tiny little pilot study. That's amazing. Can you talk about your assessment of the field right now um, in terms of the relationship between empirical research and practice. And I'm thinking of, I did, I did a master's thesis on mindfulness and occupational stress uh, 20 years ago now. And I feel like that was at a time in the research literature where a lot of writers were saying, we're at a point now where we can start to feel more confident about the veracity of programs and we need a lot more research 
in terms of what you just said, where you're getting into a lot of specifics, different populations, different programs, really understanding the mechanisms of mindfulness. And I'm a little bit out of the loop right now on the general field. I try to keep connected, but you're really in there. Can you talk about what do you, what's your assessment of the field right now? How is it and, and where is it headed? Okay. So my biggest, biggest thing I can say is beware the hype. Okay. Beware the hype. Yeah. I mean, and seriously, and I know a lot of your listeners are, are teachers are teaching mindfulness and such. So what happened, or as I've observed anyway, is that mindfulness and research just got kind of blown up. And so there, there was a period of time and it's still happening to a certain degree where mindfulness cures this and mindfulness is great for depression and mindfulness, you know, and all of it, like very exciting, but a lot of hype. And, and I think that the most important thing to know is that the field is very, very young. So the Mm -hmm. first research was done in like, in the seventies, right? That was when John Kabat-Zinn started doing the research on, before it was even called MBSR, but on chronic pain. And actually there's a lot of robust research on chronic pain that and anxiety, depression, and depression have the most robust findings. Um, So then there was like nothing, nothing for very few, very few. And then probably 10, 15 years ago, boom, this explosion of studies and then explosion of sort of like pop culture jumping onto the studies. And my favorite example of this was that I was... There was a magazine article that I had a quote in, and I'm reading the article more closely, and it the pull quote said, mindfulness is helpful for reducing anxiety and belly fat. And I was like, oh, no. not many people I know, but that's okay. Um, so the way yeah. it just gets distorted and pulled out. Um, so long story short, at this point, there's probably five six, 7,000 studies on mindfulness, which is like amazing and exciting. But if you were yeah. to say, how many studies are there with uh, showing that a heart, heart disease is positively impacted by exercise, you would find like 60,000 studies, right? So that, so if you put it into perspective, it's still very mm. young. And also many of the studies need to be like they're not gold standard studies. They're studies that need to be right. replicated with larger population size, subject size. I mean, it's just, there's many, many things to do and it's exciting. Like there's all this great yeah. research and that's the thing. So going back to, if you're a teacher, it's what I always tell the teaching students is to, you got to walk the line between not getting lost in the hype, but at the same time, helping people see that it's really beneficial because in our culture right now, when people see scientific studies, they buy it and it's very exciting and it's, it's a motivator to practice. And that's what I love. It's one of the, I think it's one of the reasons mindfulness has gotten so popular, right? Because the science Mm -hmm. is saying, Hey, it can help you with your anxiety. Okay. I would never think about doing mindfulness, but I guess I'll do it because it helps with anxiety, you know, and then, so it's a great motivator, but we have to use it in a very careful and, um, and, and real authentic way. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I respect Mark so much in UCLA was it feels like a, it's an evidence-based program. I feel like you are taking the lead in some ways, or at least it's, it's grounded in empirical research. Can you talk about before we talk about you as meditation teacher and writer, how are you shaped and influenced in an ongoing way by the research? Like what are, I'm thinking of teachers out there who maybe don't spend a lot of time um, digging into the research and 
I would have the question, well, how are you actually impacted? Either you, Diana, as a teacher or as someone who's teaching teachers, what what have been some examples of like, wow, I, I changed how I thought about, um, you know, this practice based on this study or where, where did you get influenced? Um, okay, so I'll start with one of our ongoing jokes with my colleague Marvin Belzer, which is that if the science showed us that mindfulness made you more anxious, r- ruined your sleep, uh, caused high blood pressure and all of that, we would still probably meditate. <laughs> we would definitely meditate. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> I mean, for me, like I started meditating when I was 20 and I loved it. I fell in love and it's always been like, it's one of my most favorite things in my life. And so it's never needed the research to show me that it wasn't the research. There wasn't even research really back then when I started that being said, there are certain studies that I hear about that inspire me, that motivate me, that make me feel like, Oh, this is so cool. Like for instance, there's a bunch of neuroscience studies showing the impact on the prefrontal cortex and increased gray matter, increased gray matter in different parts of the brain, increased cortical thickness, like all of that. I think, Oh good. You know, I'm getting older. It's nice to know that I've been doing something that can protect my brain into the future, you know, so things like that. And, and then some of the studies that I think are, I mean, they're also very early studies, but they, are to me very inspirational are the ones connected to mindfulness and altruism, mindfulness and pro-social behavior. Um, We did this funny study, must have been a graduate student came to us and said, can I use your meditations for this? Because I wasn't too involved. I just found out the results. But the study was, they had an online game that was about giving donations. And so people would give donations and they track the rate in which they did the donations. And then a proportion of the group listened to one of our meditations and then they tracked it. And it turned out that those people gave at like two to three times more frequently than the people who didn't. So, you know, it hasn't been replicated. We don't know all the reasons why, but that kind of stuff is is pretty cool and interesting and motivating for me, especially. And then there's not much also in the field of like, the impact on like social justice and larger societal questions. But some of the early research that's being done on mindfulness and implicit bias is very interesting to me. So I, you know, those are the things that excite me, but you know, that's great. I'm inspired by it too. I'm thinking of Rhonda McGee too, and her work around implicit bias and mindfulness and what becomes possible there. And it's, there's so many distinct fields, you know, I've, because I don't know, I know some of your story, but are you open to sharing a little bit about being 20 and falling in love with practice? What, what happened? What was the the love affair? Uh, Sure. Yeah. Um, so I had graduated from college. I mean, I was 21, I guess, but I graduated from college and I ended up in Asia. I had been an exchange student in Thailand as a undergrad and then I wasn't really that interested in the religion at the time, but I decided to go back to Asia afterwards and I traveled around and I ended up in Dharamsala and where the Dalai Lama's government in exile is. And I was a big activist. I was a political activist. I was got immediately involved in like this Save Tibet organization and not interested in the Buddhist teachings that were happening all around me constantly. And finally, it was just, it was so pervasive in this space. And I don't know, it just everybody was going to teaching. So I decided to attend some teachings. And I have this very strong memory of sitting in the back 
with a big bar of chocolate and opening it up really rudely, crinkling the paper <laughs> and, you know, like, ah, what is this nonsense? You know, yeah. and, but anyway, something, something grabbed me and I'll tell you what grabbed me. I mean, I'm, I don't know how much detail you want me to go no, into please, here, yeah. but I, from there, I ended up doing like a 10 day retreat in the Tibetan Buddhist style. And there was this teaching and so something about me prior to finding these meditation practices is I was a very driven person. I was like super type A, wanting to do well through school, needing a lot of external approval. And so I was, I was, so I was taking this retreat and they, I remember they were giving this teaching on what's typically called the worldly winds or worldly dharmas. And it's about there are these pairs of opposite. There's praise and blame and gain and loss and um, pleasure and pain. Like they come together and there's one more fame and disrepute. And I heard this. And when she said there is praise and blame, the teacher talked about this. It was like everything inside me went, oh my gosh, this is my life. Like mm-hmm. seeking, seeking, seeking praise, running away from blame suffering when I get blamed, you know, needing the praise, suffering when the praise is right. Like I could just see the the mechanisms that were causing the suffering in my life. And then she said, well, there's this way out and it's equanimity. It's finding a mind of peace, even amid the changing conditions. And you can do that through meditation. And there, it was like this real turning point in my, in a, in a moment in my life. And I just dove in from there. And I started doing all this meditation and I spent the next 10 years basically in and out of long retreats in Asia and the U.S., culminating with a a year-long retreat when I lived as a Buddhist nun in Myanmar, Burma. Mm. And, um, but I would come back, like I would, you know, I would come back to the States and I would waitress to make money to go on my next retreat. And, you know, I did that pretty much all through my 20s. So that was the that was the beginning of my journey and and I just fell in love with long retreats like I love what happens to your mind over a period of time when you allow it to concentrate and calm and come into a place of balance and it just so anyway I became a retreat junkie. It's one thing that comes through your writing to me uh, or your teaching but when I read your books that your joy that there's something actually it seems almost pleasurable for you around what can happen uh, on retreats and whereas you know for myself or some others yeah it's just it was so challenging there's just it's just felt like a grind the whole time and I'm sure I know you've had that as well but does that has that hung around for you that that feeling of the, maybe the even off retreat, that that kind of joy in practice, or how has it changed over over time? Um, well, yes. I, at first, I want to say it can be a grind, <laughs> and that's yeah. over many many years, I've had many grinds. So, not to assume I'm being all positive right now, but it's no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. also been I because it's now been thirty plus years that I have been meditating. It's so different. You know, there's been years where it's been, it's felt like essential. Like I had to do it, like it was water to drink, you know, and there've been years when it was really far away. So like, for instance, when I had my daughter, it was really hard for the first number of years to make time to meditate. And I would do daily life practice. I would do a lot of like nursing her and trying to be mindful as I was doing it and meditate when I woke up in the middle of the night and hadn't slept in five days. And, you know, but, but then it practice felt 
a little bit far away, but there was some other kind of practice that was unfolding. And that was something that I really like got to, got to live, you know, and, and try to understand. So, so there've been times when my practice has felt stale and boring. And then there are times when I've, there's been like new teachers or something in it that's really brought it alive. And I'm currently in a really, really live place. And I think partially my, my daughter is old enough, so I have more free time in my life. And, <laughs> yeah. and there was something that was just really calling to me, like, okay, like it's really, it's time to go back in in a certain way. And so I've been working with a new teacher and just feeling like the, the tremendous connection to the practice. I'm so grateful for that. That's awesome. What what is your do you manifest? What's your practice like these days? What are you sitting much, or uh, and what's the sitting entail? Yeah, I sit. I try. I don't always to you know somewhere between like. 10 to 30 minutes, depending on what I do and what time my daughter wakes up and what time I have to get her ready for school and, you know, all of that. But, and I'm, I've been doing a lot of practices that involve, well, so, so I've been teaching natural awareness practices, what I call that, which is more in the like non-dual side of practice. And so I usually begin my practice with a, a settling practice where I connect with the earth and a quality of presence that I sort of invite by the settling in. So it's just like, it's like a sitting and being practice. And then I check in and what, like what's happening inside me. So then there's often, oftentimes a lot of just opening to whatever is present. And then sometimes then a resting in a sense of being and just kind of connecting there. And so it's very, it's very free flow, depending on what's going on. If I'm feeling that I might be doing a practice to work with emotions. I might be sending kindness to myself or out into the world. I do a lot these days. I try to remember to send a lot of kindness <laughs> to the world because we all need it. But it's, uh, and, and then for me, the practice a lot is about incorporating it into daily life. Like how do I, how do I, take it when I'm, you know, walking down the street, when I'm walking my dog, when I'm, when I'm facing my child. And, and, and so not just like, can I be mindful, but can I rest in this quality of being like, this is, this is where I find the real juice right now, this sense of like accessing a fundamental well-being rather than like mm-hmm. be mindful of the, you know, sound or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe this would be a time to talk about your most recent book, which is uh, a little book of being, if I have it right. And I feel like what you just said about what inspires you about practice really comes through in the writing where it might appear simple, but definitely not easy. And there are really direct, straightforward, accessible practices that when I talk about the book, it feels like a deeply trauma informed Mm -hmm. book. It's that it, it can really, it's so powerful to feel that, you know, the years of teaching at your back and the research that I think informs the teaching, but it's not heavy handed in that way. So I'm wondering how it's been a couple, is it a year now that the book came out or maybe two? 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How is your, you know, it's one of your, I don't know if you'd call it a a kid, but you know, (laughs) one, maybe it's out in the world. How, how are you feeling about that work? I recommend it often. And Mm. does it still feel relevant? I'm curious what your relationship is to right now. Yeah. Well, I love, thank you for being so supportive of the book. I love that you have seen it as a trauma informed because I really, I really, I really was trying to write 
about something that hasn't, like a way of doing meditation that hasn't been taught before so much in the mindfulness field, especially because there's such a range of people's experiences and not everybody can do kind of like standard stuff. So so the book has, it, the book is interesting. I mean, you know what it's like, you write a book and then your, your thinking changes. <laughs> I could have done this. And so there's a bit of that going <laughs> yeah. on, yeah. but what has happened is it's also, I've refined it a lot since then. And I still stand, I stand by everything I said in the book, but I've gotten to, <laughs> I've had other opportunities to keep going with it and keep, keep finding out ways of teaching it. So I, so, so I, for instance, I just taught a six month study group for people who wanted to go deeper. And I learned, I learned so much, you know, because of how to articulate and what happens with the students and how to support them in it. And I created, I have an audio course of it coming up, but it's not the, it's, it's an audio course, like much shorter than the book called glimpses of being that'll be available in the summer. And I had to like rethink mm-hmm. it in this more simple way. So so I feel like I'm in this very living relationship with it and, and it keeps me on my toes with my teaching and my practice because I got to, you know, you got to live it. You can't like fake it and pretend that you're, <laughs> you're not practicing and, you know, yeah. right. Yeah. So, right, right. Yeah. Has, has the global pandemic changed any of the way that you teach? So when you just mentioned this project coming out in the summer, was it different at all or was it sort of stay the course with the practice and, and nothing's different. I just, I, I'm curious at how it's impacted mm. you. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, so one thing is I have been teaching a lot of practices and, and ideas that I think are relevant to hanging, hanging in there for the plan- pandemic. And I would say the main place that I do that is on my Thursday meditation class, which is, um, you know, there are hundreds of people from all over the world and I feel very like trying to be as current as I can. And like, what is going to help someone right now? Well, what do I, so we had a, the day after the election, we, or two days after the election, I, we met. And so there was like, it was like a practice for dealing with the uncertainty and the confusion of post-election or when the, you know, all of that's happened with, George Floyd and that like, how do we, what practices are going to be helpful? Um, Equanimity, working with difficult emotions, handling anxiety, handling uncertainty, patience, like what, like what will be live for people? So I'm very, very interested in place in the places where I have like a lot of public interface. Um, As I kind of mentioned earlier, it's not what I'm teaching now isn't different than what I was teaching before. It's more how Mm. we like how we bring out the themes, I guess. And, um, and then also I would say that I feel a kind of like urgency around giving people these tools in a way that I haven't before because people, there's so much, um, you know, people are really hurting, right? That's the simplest way of putting it. And A lot of, you know, not the people probably who are listening to you right now, but a lot of people do not have tools to work with their mind. And so how do we put that out there in a very simple, accessible way? Like that, like, like there's an urgency and an urgency also for all of us, for teachers, for whatever, to develop and become the best human beings that we can with the most clarity and wisdom and compassion, because we need to be out there as this world becomes more and more crazy. Like, so I frame things like in terms of resiliency and in terms of, 
well, that's the main, that's the main approach. Like, like how can we be resilient and adapt and compassionate and present for the world? Yeah. I feel that urgency in a lot of people. I think they can feel this massive pivot taking place and the, just the urgency of tools to work with the mind. And I'm wondering what you'd say to someone who might be listening, who maybe has been practicing for a while and has an inspiration to teach that maybe they're, they're in a, sitting in a zoom room or they're in a, when we used to be together, they're with a teacher and they say, you know what? I, I feel like I would be inspired to walk this path or travel this path around becoming a teacher someday. And I ask because I know, I feel like one time I thought I wanted to be a teacher and then was chastised a little bit and realized it was coming from kind of an egotistical place. Like, Oh, I, I can do this. And, and it was taking me away from practice. And at the same time, I think there's something wise in people who have that impulse to say, I, these practices are amazing and so helpful for me and for these different reasons. And I'd like to train and how to actually offer this to others. So if, if someone was at a a juncture where they were starting to feel that inspiration, what would be the advice you'd have for them about where to look or whether they should move ahead with it or not? Well, I think that you have, well, you, this is not what you're asking, but you have become a teacher. You, I mean, it's in your thing, so it's awesome. And I think you should keep going and do more. But anyway, in terms of, (laughs) of other people, the main thing, the absolute most important thing is it's centered in your practice. So if you, if you've done a little bit of practice and you think, wow, I could be a teacher. That's great. I would say practice more. If you've done a lot of practice and you've done retreats and you've, you know, really studied and explored it for at least a couple of years, three, four or five years, then go for it. But it'd be helpful to find a training program to not do it just on your own out of the blue. Please do not like just stick up a shingle and say, I'm a mindfulness teacher. There's fantastic training programs. And um, if you go to the IMTA, for instance, there's a list of like the 17 accredited programs and there's many, many more that, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of resources out there for, for people. And so I just, you know, there's, there's certain, we have, minimal requirements for the training programs. And that's, you have done at least done some meditation retreats that you've practiced at least four years that you've done a certain amount of study. And so I I don't have it off the top of my head, but those are some guidelines to help people think about how you might want to get into the field. But I I definitely say do a training program there. There's so many great ones out there, really like amazing, phenomenal things Mm -hmm. that you can do. And, and one of the things that I love about it's, I I say this about my own training program, but it's available in pretty much most of most all of them is you're having a, like, it's not just about teaching others. It's about your own growth and development. And so people go through a period of transformation in order to be ready to take the seat. And so that's the thing, like you may come in the door and feel like I'm not ready. Well, something's got to get you ready. Right. So it's good that you say, I'm not ready. Humility. Awesome. Really important. And then there's a whole process of like cooking you, right. That you, that helps you get to the, to the other side, to the end. And, um, and so just get support, join things, you know, that's the main thing. Yeah. I've seen people having now gotten to meet and work with a lot of people who are in teacher training programs. It is a, it is quite a, 
soup. <laughs> it's a container to be in or a pot to cook in for those number of years because there's in many ways not many places to hide inside of it. And for better, for worse. And I think people, if, if they're leaning in and saying, I'm going to be growing and changing through this course, all the better. I've seen people make some amazing changes in their lives. So mm. it's great advice. Well, I, it's great to talk to you and hear a little bit about, I've been wondering how you've been uh, this last, this last stretch. And if people are interested in learning more about you or learning more about Mark and the training program there, is I'll link it, but anything you'd want to say about how people can get in touch with you or, or uh, Mark? Yeah. So the UCLA Mark website, which is uclahealth.org slash Mark, M-A-R-C. That's all the stuff going on with our program. And then, and we have the UCLA Mindful app, which is just free to download. And then my personal website is com, And that more focuses on sort of my book and you know, ways of learning more about these more non-dual or natural awareness practices. And then I have, I, I do have a course on like uh, the waking up app and some on 10% happier. So if you want to hear some of the meditations, that's another way to find me. Oh, that's great. Aaron, you're on this, that's the Sam Harris app. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I am the one woman in the, in the app. Wow. <laughs> Is that diversity. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Jeez. Yeah. That's really highly gendered over, over that way. Did you get to do a course there with it? Yeah, or, I did yeah. a course. He, so he has, he has like, it's mostly him, but then he has some guest teachers and there's been like three or four other people and myself. Yeah. Great. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks for your work, both in contemplative practice, also as a mom. And mm. uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talk again soon. That's great. I really love talking to you, David, as always. Thanks, Diana. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Diana for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, you can visit my website at davidtrelevin.com. There's information there about a free webinar on the topic and also our accredited online course. Until then, thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you again soon.